bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And Erica, today we are joined by Mayor Ottawa mayoral candidate Catherine McKenney and current, well, current-ish, uh, counselor for Somerset Ward, the downtown ward in Ottawa. And Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be here. And I think, is this the first time we've had you on the podcast? It is. I was thinking that myself uh, early this morning. It is my first time. That's offensive of us. I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's okay. okay. (laughs) You know, we do have listeners outside of Ottawa, so I think it would be kind of helpful for them to kind of get a sense of what brought you into politics initially, because I think you've been on council basically the whole time I've lived in Ottawa. Like just, Mm -hmm. I think I moved in just the, the year before you were elected. Right. And, and then a little bit about, either the Ward 14 or Somerset Ward itself. And then we kind of get into your campaign. Sure, sure. What brought me into politics? I've always been around politics. Um, I've been fortunate to have, uh, before I ran for council, I had, uh, you know, a front row seat to what I think are some of the, you know, uh, better politicians uh, in, in our city and country. Uh, so I, I worked for two city councillors. I worked for Diane Holmes, who was uh, this back in 1998. And I also worked for Alex Munter, who was the councillor for Canada uh, Suburban Community. For those of you uh, listening who are not from Ottawa, I, uh, I lived in Canada and worked for Alex up until... Uh, it was about 2004. Um, I, I went up to the hill for a little while. I worked for Ed Broadbent. And uh, did you really? That's cool. I did. I did. I so was you had ledge assistant and Paul Dewar and Paul Dewar. Oh wow! So, so you have a federal connection too, which I, I think do. is very important for somebody who is running to be mayor of Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Ottawa is very specific mm-hmm. that way. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because it's just, you know what, it's, uh, it's just up the street from city hall and, and the closer your connection to the federal government uh, as, uh, as a city, as a mayor, uh, I think the, the better your opportunities are for, um, you know, for influencing policy, but also ensuring that you get uh, the funds that are available and that uh, that you're able to access from uh, federal government. So yeah, I worked uh, I worked up on the hill for a while, but you know what? My my instincts have always been at the municipal level. So I I was going to ask how come you didn't yeah. stay at the hill? Yeah, because usually just, that's what people do, right? Like they yeah they're yeah. like they're like oh I'm here, and then they you know they go through different portals I guess you yes, could say but it's mm-hmm. like the, the quote-unquote power and the quote-unquote influences mm-hmm. yeah I I've always thought you were more influential at the municipal level really and, and yeah yeah and uh, especially on people's day-to-day lives yeah, uh, so, I, yeah, I think yeah. Your, your interest is much more like tangible than the day-to-day machinations of people's yes. lives and so yeah that totally makes sense absolutely absolutely that, not, not to say that 
obviously federal politics and what happens at the federal level is important, provincial level, but at the municipal level, it really does have such a direct impact on, on people and decision-making is, is, is quicker and, and, the, and the outcomes are more immediate. So I ended up back at the city uh, in a senior role at the city. I worked uh, directly for Steve Kamalakis, who's the uh, city manager. Uh, we were responsible at that time for all of operations at the city. So um, I did that for eight years. And uh, then I decided to run for council uh, in 2014. So this is my second term, I'm just finishing up my second term. So I've been elected for eight years, but I do have uh, experience uh, in the bureaucracy, but also, uh, you know, for uh, other politicians. So yeah, I've, I've been fortunate, I have to say. What are some of the main sort of, of inputs that shaped your views? Was it more people or was it circumstances, first of all? Hmm. Well, I think it We'll was, get to the views later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's probably a bit of both. Uh, growing up, um, I grew up and went to school that had a very uh, large, the majority of the, the kids uh, when I was young were Indigenous. Um, you know, I saw firsthand the the, you know, the inequities, the poverty, the, yeah, just the, you know, what, uh, what that particular and, you know, obviously our other uh, Indigenous, uh, other Indigenous communities across this country are facing. I was very young, obviously, I was like six, seven, eight, nine. Um, you know, this, it was uh, in Sturgeon Falls. So there was, uh, yeah, there was a, a community not far and the school I went to had uh, mostly, uh, mostly Indigenous uh, kids. So uh, those were my friends. Uh, you know, I, I remember, I remember I had one friend in particular um, who uh, I think I was six and I came back from, you know, Christmas break. And I said to her, you know, what'd you get for Christmas? And she said, I got a stuffed snake. And I said, okay, but what else? And she said, well, that, that was it, just a stuffed snake. And I said, but it doesn't make sense because, you know, I was little, right? I said, like, your, your parents are good for like 10 gifts and then Santa brings you another 10, right? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, all I got was a stuffed snake. And I went home and I said to my mother, you can't tell me there's a Santa Claus. I was the oldest of, at that time, four. Mm. And, my mother, and I was upset. And my mother said, okay, there is it, right? But don't tell your brother and sisters. <laughs> and I immediately told my brother and sisters, like, there is no Santa Claus. Um, so, but I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, there was another, another student, a girl who was um, in that class with me. Her name uh, was Nancy. And Nancy and I were always tied. We were always first and second academically uh, in track and field. And, you know, by the time I hit grade seven and eight, I realized that for us to be equal, um, I was average and she was exceptional. And that's how, you know, so just the, just, you know, just the, what it meant to have those inequities in life. And um, so I think that, I think that shaped me, uh, you know, it shaped a lot of my views when I was very young. 
Um, and, you know, but I, I also don't think that, I think that we have people who with very progressive and, you know, very good values who, who haven't had that experience. But for me, I look back and I, I, I realized that that's when things started to take shape for me. How did you make sense of that world? Mm. Well, it took a long time, right? I mean, you know, when you're a kid, everything else takes over and, you know, summer is just sunny and fun and, you know, school is what school is. Um, but just, you know, over time, um, you know, I, I was able to see um, the, the privilege that, that I had uh, and, and what that meant and, and, and how it just allowed me to, you know, uh, move ahead to where somebody else could be left behind. Mm. Um, yeah, I'll tell you another nice uh, piece about that whole time. So that's, you know, grade one to grade eight. Years later, 20 years later, I went back. I was traveling through the town and I went back and uh, and this, you know, this friend who we were one and two it was the principal of our school. She became no way. the principal. Oh. Yeah. Isn't Yay. That I know. Yay. I know. That's a nice story. It is. It I was, is. I was I like, know. oh, what happened? I, I was just I waiting know. for it. And I'm like, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need some upliftment, Kath. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, it always made, I was always like so touched by that. It's like, oh, that's, yeah, it's a, a good circle. So how did, so how did the people, I guess, uh, you said you work for Paul Dewar, how did those people bring that mindset and kind of meld it into, mm-hmm. like, and make it, how, how make did, it more tangible, right? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, yeah. Like yes. a political view rather than like a, a um, an inherent yeah. belief. Yes. Well, or Diane uh, and Diane Holmes, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when Diane and Alex uh, hired me, they, they hired me together okay. uh, each half time. So I worked for Diane in the morning and Alex in the afternoon, which <laughs> you know, I could write a book about. I could write a book about that experience. <laughs> yeah. And two different, completely different parts of town. 100%. And that was so interesting because we would put in the downtown, we would work so hard to get traffic calming onto, say, Lion Street. And then in the so, afternoon. So, I Diane, get... so, sorry, I'm going to, I'm no, just going to interrupt for clarity. So, Diane was a city, Diane Holmes was a city councilor in Ottawa. Um, in I believe ward. For in, in Somerset. Ward 14. In Somerset. in Somerset, Ward 14. And I believe for like years and years, right? 32. Like 15. Oh, 32. damn. I was undercounting 32 <laughs> years. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mean to undercount your contribution. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a long time. It was a long time. And then Alex, of course, was in Canada. And I lived in Canada. So oh, that's it was right. very, that's right. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting. Just the, um, just you know, being able to understand, yeah, there were contrasts in terms of what, uh, you know, what people were looking for, but there was much more in common between the two wards than uh, people often acknowledge. So, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, 
we often think, oh, if you, you know, you know, if you live downtown, you have no idea what it's like to uh, live in a suburban ward or uh, vice versa. And, and, you know, I learned through that time that everybody is looking for the same thing. They all, you know, people want uh, community, you know, they want to be connected to each other. They do. Uh, they want to be proud of where they live. Uh, you know, they want to be able to, uh, you know, get access, to a library and, you know, access I, services that, when they need it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and walk when they want to. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly did provide me with that, um, um, you know, that, that, you know, the, 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 the idea that, you know, this city really, uh, we really are much more similar than we are different across the city. And, and so you would have worked for Alex like shortly after amalgamation? Yes. So, Aaron, yes. you are reading my mind. I was Very just going to ask about amalgamation, girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look so when we amalgamated, I went into Alex's office full time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, and yeah. how did amalgamation change the way services were mm-hmm. um, delivered, um, tax pay, like all of those municipal things, yeah. like the organization of the city, how did that change? And do you think it was a good thing? Like, I, I guess, mm-hmm. I guess it's hard to say because there are always positives and negatives, but yeah. Sure. Sure. There are. There's no perfect way of governing, of course, right? But prior to amalgamation, what you had was you had individual, you know, uh, cities, and then you had a regional government. So when I worked for Alex and Diane, they were regional councillors, right? They weren't city councillors. They oh, they were at the regional table. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. So they, you know, that's when the region was responsible for like, overall transportation planning, transit, you know, so the, the files that affected, you know, the, the entire region. And then each city was responsible for things like, you know, parks, recreation services, garbage, policing, like they all had their own. um, Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, when, when we amalgamated, I mean, you know, one of the benefits of amalgamation was that, you know, we could plan out the city uh, better, you know, to ensure that, you know, we don't sprawl and that, you know, each individual municipality doesn't, you know, um, sprawl beyond its borders. We, we know and we knew back then that that's something that wasn't, you know, conducive to, uh, you know, a healthy city. Um, you know, again, like you say, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages, but 22 years on, I really feel that um, Ottawa is now coming into itself, that it's seeing itself, you know, taking pride in, you know, being from Ottawa. Uh, Still, you know, when you're in Ottawa, you know, where do you live? You have your own neighborhood, it's Canada, it's Orleans, it's, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, Westboro, like you can be proud of your neighborhood, which we all should be. But when we're outside of Ottawa, and, you know, I think that now more people will identify 
Ottawa as the city, right? It's so, mm-hmm. so that's it. Yeah. And it took time. It took time. People mm-hmm. took pride in where they were from. Uh, you know, if they, if they identified with, say, Canada, they took pride in that for a long time. But, you know, I think that, again, it is, it is 22 years on. And I think that people are, um, I think the city has kind of grown and matured uh, to a point now where, um, yeah, we just see ourselves as, you know, different neighborhoods but one city i agree actually because like i ottawa's changed a lot in the last Mm -hmm. like 10 15 years i mean it it looks like it's grown into adolescence or something you know but like an 18 year old rather than a 14 year old you know yes absolutely we're getting kicked out of the nest you know yeah just about to move up i feel i feel like that's (laughs) ottawa yeah. Just there. Yes. Just there. I know. <laughs> yeah. And then a convoy happens. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know what? You gotta grow up real quick. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was that was a shock to the yeah, that was a shock to the system. And I I you know, the convoy, we're still dealing with remnants from this convoy. And um, so how would you I mean I you know, we saw you out in the streets of Ottawa trying to get people help, trying to get mm-hmm. them either clo- the services they needed and stuff like that. And it was it's it's interesting because the problem is Ottawa showed, honestly, that it wasn't that grown up in it yet. Mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. the way they the way the mayor handled the convoy and mm-hmm. you know. I thought it was quite divisive in terms of, you know, it seemed like he was sacrificing downtown for the suburbs. How has your work as city councillor kind of shifted after the convoy? Because I feel like Mm -hmm. Ottawa is still in a mess. Yeah, you know, yeah, it is. It is. And I'll say this about the convoy when it was here and for those three and a half weeks, um, I received messages of very strong support from across the city. Mm-hmm. Like people were sending me emails from Stittsville, from Orleans, from Barhaven. Uh, Barhaven, really? Very sympathetic to yeah. what was happening uh, in Centertown. Uh, I think it. I think in a way, it brought the city together. Uh, I think that people saw you know what, this is, you know, this is, this is our city. Uh, and, uh, and, and I really did. I was, I was, uh, you know, um, it, it meant a lot. And I, and I would repeat that to people whenever I was out on the street or visiting with people who were having a really hard time. And I would say, look, I want you to know that people across the city care about what's happening in your neighborhood. Uh, some of the other leaders perhaps are, you know, not reacting, but the rest of the city sees it and they and they sympathize with with what's happening and they see it and they believe it. So, um, you know, I, I do think that it was it was a time when, you know, perhaps we, we I, th- I think it did. I think it did bring us together as uh, as a city to, just to, to know that things could change in one neighborhood happened to be center town, but it could have been anywhere. Things could change in one neighborhood so quickly. And 
from what we saw, there was no coordinated effective response to it. It took three and a half weeks for, um, you know, for, for, for the city, for police to, to effectively respond to what was happening and the federal government and the provincial government. Like it, it was a, it was a, it was a neighborhood that was just, you know, um, uh, left to itself in what was probably one of the most uh, difficult times uh, in our, in our history, really, like for, for, um, for something that was happening on the street. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, damn, we can't include Carlet burning down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think that like, you know, Ottawa is a type of place that has people from across Canada moving here for work, mm-hmm. for various, for school. And, you know, I find that those people, it's, it's always a lot of like, you know, I think about in terms of sports. So you've got like Toronto fans, you've got Senators fans, you've got Habs fans, and they all kind of coalesce here. But like the convoy mm-hmm. was definitely something, like you said, that brought everyone together towards a common cause. Yeah. And I think, and like something that was very relatable to many people, you know, people who live in the suburbs didn't necessarily live through the day-to-day issues but they knew that it was draining resources, a distraction. There was like all of these other things. And like, we're really lucky that downtown was ostensibly closed at that time, right? Yeah. People weren't working, services were yeah. still, like, we were still in kind it's of a lockdown during, for the pandemic. And so there was no real day-to-day activity down there. And so far less, far fewer people had to experience what was going on and than probably would have would be even now yeah i mean you're right there there were fewer people um because people weren't coming in to to work now it it wreaked havoc for our local businesses our small businesses you know spark street bank street Mm -hmm. uh the rito center for the people who work there you know without wages for for weeks um it's it's hard to say if having more people coming in every day would have made it uh, better or worse, right? Sometimes more, sometimes having, well, well having the commercial set, you know, uh, sector of the downtown emptied out can make it feel less safe, um, you know? So, but it's, you know, it, I think that, I think the key thing with the occupation for me anyway, that, that really hit home for me was that it, even at, from from leadership at the city, that it took weeks to acknowledge that there is a a dense residential neighborhood right mm-hmm. near Parliament Hill, um, and and it was being ignored um, mm-hmm. through such a difficult time. Yeah, yeah. What was kind of the catalyst to bring you to running for mayor? Was it parting part of the convoy, and, or in part like? your perception of how the city was functioning and council, et cetera? Hmm. You know, I, when I ran for council, if I can just back up a little bit, when I ran for council, uh, I had uh, actually a better paying job in the bureaucracy. I took a, a lower paying job to run for council uh, because I could see where the city was headed and I didn't, I didn't think it was good. I, I thought it was headed in the wrong direction. 
so, you know, here I am eight years later, I made the decision to run for mayor because I know that there is so much potential in this city and we have to, uh, you know, we, we have to create vibrant neighborhoods, uh, you know, uh, across the city. Uh, we have to invest in, in housing that's affordable, um, and we have to invest in good transit that's reliable and safe cycling and, you know, good walking neighborhoods, climate action. And I didn't see that happening. So I decided to run because I want to see that change. The status quo, uh, just to me, for me and for many, many people I, I speak to, um, just is not uh, moving this city in uh, in the right direction. I, I I love urbanism and read a lot about it and like climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay, that is so random. I love urbanism. No, but I just want to I just want to like preface this. <laughs> I used to read a lot of books on urbanism, Erica. <laughs> Seeing you working out and you spitting in an I love urbanism tea. Yeah, listen, I love Jane Actually, Jacobs. Get it uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, crap. I think somebody gave me her book. This is the woman from the 60s, right? Yes. yes. Okay. I feel like somebody gave me her book to read. And I was like, nah. I'm probably, good. probably. <laughs> I have a big rotation that I need to get to. Okay? How's that going, Erica? <laughs> Not well. Okay. Yeah. Carry on, Aaron. But, um, <laughs> <You're> urban- <laughs> you know, I think, you know, yourself and some of the other counselors uh, who are running for re-election, on Twitter especially, there's a lot of talk about vibrant neighborhoods and all of these kind of very quote-unquote urbanist terms and so I was wondering if you could maybe unpack what that means in a more like tangible sense. Absolutely absolutely so you know if you're living in a neighborhood um, that's what you want you want it to be vibrant and what does that mean it means that um, you know you can um, you can walk anywhere you know, you can walk um, to your grocery store or you can take transit to the library or you can, um, you know, you will always have like a good tree canopy to keep the street cool. You'll have parks that you need, uh, green space. You'll be able to meet with your neighbors uh, and your friends, you know, for a coffee in the park. You'll be able to, um you know, um, uh, it, it's a it's a neighborhood that can hold a history, really, um, is the way I think about it. But it's about, you know, it, it really is when we think about vibrancy, it really is about action. It's about movement. It's about how you get around, where you go, who you're with, what is it like, you know, is it healthy? Is it, uh, you know, is is it keeping you healthy? Uh, is it keeping our planet healthy? Those are the types of vibrant neighborhoods that that we need. And when we talk about, you know, things like safety is such a nebulous term. And what keeps us safe? Each other, people, people keep us safe, right? Like nobody knows more than I do about, you know, the detriments of ineffective, well, I shouldn't say nobody knows more than I do. Of course, people know more than I do. But coming out of the occupation, I know what. Uh, you know, ineffective policing does. It doesn't keep us safe, right? It's what keeps us safe is 
is is people, is being together, is is ensuring that you know people have access to the resources that they need. It's making sure that we are you know uh, you know uh, addressing the needs of people. Um, that's what. That, that, that's what keeps us safe. That's what, you know, when we talk about safety and well-being, those are the things that, uh, that, that we need in, in every community, every community across the city. And I'll go back to Jane Jacobs with that, the eyes on the street, I'll get that reference. But there's a new kind of index and it's called the Popsicle Index. And I think about this Popsicle often where index. Popsicle Index, where you should be able to give your kid, you know, who's like say 10, 11, 12, uh, money to go get a popsicle and they should be able to get there to the store safely right so it's active enough out on the street there are other people around uh, the sidewalks are safe They're able to cross the road get into the store you know get back out and get home maybe stop at a park and come home maybe be with a friend but be able to go and get that popsicle and get back home safely you don't worry about them because uh, everything is in place in your neighborhood to ensure that they're able to do that. So, you know, those are, that, that's what makes uh, a vibrant neighborhood. And then we have to include, you know, arts and culture, but, but that comes with it, right? Like tourism follows, economic development, like more small businesses follow, like all of those things follow um, good vibrant neighborhoods. I used to go as a kid to the corner store with my friends. So yeah, that's totally like yeah. makes sense to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we should always be able to do that, right? We should always have access to that type of, um, you know, uh, safe in, and by safe environment, I mean, where you can, you, you actually have uh, the, you know, whether it's cycling infrastructure or sidewalks, you can actually get around your neighborhood safely. Yes, we do like those bike lanes, Catherine. <laughs> yes, you do, don't you? <laughs> I do. I do. I actually have to pick up my bike downtown. <laughs> oh, it's at my friend's say. house. It's fine. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so I'm yeah. waiting for Erica to segue and be like, let's talk about OC transport or let's talk about the police. Yo, I was <laughs> almost there. If you just give me a second, I was going to say, at what part does OC Transpo and their terrible service play into this? Mm. Because I'm sorry, Absolutely. OC Transpo, I always have a hate off for OC Transpo because they always screw me over for some like appointment or something. You literally cannot get anywhere in the mm-hmm. city mm-hmm. on time if you're taking mm-hmm. OC Transpo. And now they want to charge you like $375 a ride. That is just way too expensive. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. And they can't even keep the train moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, it is one of the reasons I decided to run back in 2014. When we, when the city made what was called changes through what was called at the time route optimization, uh, it meant cuts. In 2011, I, I heard optimize. I, I started optimization and it went, it made my, me go, ew, because you know Absolutely. what that means. It means, it means that cuts. the people, yeah. yes, it means cuts. Yeah, it means cuts. You know? And you so, know where they're cutting from because they're never cutting nine to five, 95 route. Okay. This is inside baseball. I understand this, but they would never cut that route because it brings the suburbs into the city for their job. Mm-hmm. What I find was 
we have done this on this podcast. We have talked about the gendered um, approach to transit service delivery. Yeah. And transit in the city is not built for the people who use it. it and need it and use <laughs> yeah. it. It just isn't, right? It just isn't. I'll, I'll give you an example. Up until that time, again, I worked, I worked at the city um, and I used to take the bus every day to get there. My, my kid was really little. She actually went to daycare at the city. So we would go out here at the corner of Preston and Albert to catch the bus, get the city hall. And before route optimization, we had uh, three buses that would come, you know, one down Preston, two down uh, Albert. So you never waited more than five, seven minutes. A bus would come, you'd get on it, you get off. Same with coming home. There was an option of three different buses. Optimization happened, there was only one. And then all of a sudden you had to wait 20 minutes. And if that bus was canceled, then you had to wait 40. And it just, there would, why would I ever wait that long when I can just walk there quicker, right? So, Mm -hmm. and then, and then to make it worse, uh, you know, launched LRT uh, line one and no more capacity in the system. It just replaced all those buses, which it needed to do. But then instead of taking those buses, that we no longer needed on that line um, and, and putting them into neighborhoods and getting us around neighborhoods, uh, they cut the buses. They 175 buses were taken out of service. And that wow. many. Yeah. And here we are today. Here we are today. This is, this is what happened. Right. So, you know, it, 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 if we don't invest in people in this city, it's not going to function for people. Like it's just so simple. Why would those cuts be made? So we, you know, we have an opportunity now to, you know, and and people are talking and, you know, free transit and, you know, free transit's not going to happen overnight. Free transit is, is a goal. You know, it's something to work towards. It could take a decade, but we need deeply affordable transit. We also need reliable transit. People have got to be able to get to work. They've got to be able to get to pick up their kids uh, at the end of the day at daycare. They've got to be able to get to uh, their services, to do groceries. You know, people, you know, the, the, the easier we make transit, the more people will use it. It's, it's just that simple. And, and that's, uh, that's kind of the, the history of transit for you in the city of Ottawa. I mean, I don't have, I don't been fortunate to live in places where I haven't needed to take transit, but yeah, your point about mm-hmm. being able to walk somewhere faster, it's particularly if you live downtown is extremely real, right? Like literally auto- this yeah. is my jam. Okay. Very walkable <laughs> and bikeable cities so like if you live anywhere close to downtown then you don't necessarily need to take transit as regularly as someone coming in from the suburbs and I think this is one of going back to what we were talking about earlier one of the downsides of amalgamation is that (coughs) we have this bigger sprawl but our services for the bring the suburbs in and out of downtown is like not as robust as it probably should be or that yeah, that's I mean, the limitation yeah. of our services in terms of mm-hmm. objectives. You know, our mm-hmm. services are not just for bringing people to and for the suburbs. I mean, you have to get from north to south, too. Mm-hmm. And I understand, you know, I get it. Ottawa spreads out along the river. I get it. But to get 
from Gatineau to here, here. I don't even go to Gatineau. Okay. I don't go there. Why? I'm not sure how I'm getting back. That's right. the problem. Yeah, yeah. Also, I have to have a different bus pass. Oh, that's another thing. So the only time I go to Gatineau is on bike. The only time. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I know I can get back. Okay. Right. <laughs> and that's <laughs> a problem bike. too. It's like, it's like, there's this, it seems like you have a very holistic approach to sitting planning, to urban planning, to just living and how much our environments really shape us, shape our thoughts, they shape our goals, they shape mm-hmm, all sorts of things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Well, I mean, I mean, pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic, because I did, I lived in Canada. And when I lived in Canada, I took the bus in every day. And and that was necessary. It was necessary to, have, you know, uh, Orleans has got one of the highest uh, riderships, uh, people coming into the, the city by by transit. So that was absolutely necessary. Commuter, transit, even commuter cycling, you know, very necessary. Just can't have people driving. There's just isn't the capacity to park everywhere. We'll just keep, you know, taking down housing for parking. Um, oh my gosh, enough, ew. But today we have of- an opportunity. Today we have an opportunity because people aren't coming into the city in the same numbers, right? So we have an opportunity now um, to look at what that means. And do we take those buses and do we put them in local communities? Do we put them in Canada? Right now, if you live in Canada, you cannot get from Canada South, south of Queensway to North by bus. What? Right. You can't. You okay. cannot get, if you live in Canada South and you work at a high-tech business park, you can't get there by bus. It's true. It's true. No, it's awful. I tried if once. You're, if, I tried if you're once. in Barhaven, if you're in Barhaven on evenings and weekends and all of Barhaven, there's one local route. One. Like, it's, it's outrageous. People in every community in the city need to be able to move around their community, their neighborhood uh, in different ways. We've got to, you know, it's, it, it's, it's more sustainable, obviously. It gets people out of congestion. It's an equity issue. Um, but it's also just a better way to plan your city, right? Like more people are traveling around by bus, walking, electric bus. It's just a nicer place to live, right? Like that's the reality, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So now's the time to, you know, to rethink transit, to make it more reliable, to make it more affordable, you know, to start to, to make those changes that will bring back ridership onto the system and get people moving around their neighborhood in the way that they want to. I'm fortunate. I live very close to LRT. If I want to go downtown, I just jump on that train and I'm there. I love it. I love traveling. However, here's, here's a personal problem I have with LRT. So I, (laughs) whenever they close the station, they don't tell anybody. Mm. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> I mean, how many times? And and you know whether or not the station's yeah. open is a crapshoot, right? This yeah. happened to you the last time we we got together. Exactly. They closed the station, and nobody said there was no there was like no signage as you were walking to the station. Yeah. Like I don't understand. I don't understand where just the little things fall short. The little mm-hmm. things, like mm-hmm. let people know. 
Yeah. Hey, yeah. No, I agree. I saw all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And anyway, let's move on to the police because we would be remiss if we did not talk about the police. Now, <laughs> as you know, I've been doing a lot of media on this whole harassment of journalists thing. Yes. And everybody asks me about the police. I'm like, why do we have to go to the police? And why do we have to go to the police directly? Because the police re-traumatizes people. Mm. I mean, the police is a whole nother story. I know this is a whole huge issue, but you know, it's such a huge part of the municipal budget. And I don't, I don't know. Do you know the percentage of the police in terms of the budget? Oh, I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, I have to look but it, it up. But it is too. large. But it it's is large. Yeah. Large people. Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah. something like four hundred million dollars or something. It's well, yeah, three sixty-five million. Something. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. But for like a million there, people. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it is. You know, the. We it is for a million people, and you know sometimes people will argue. Well, we don't have uh, we don't have the same you know police per population say as Winnipeg or Edmonton. Uh, they have a higher rate of police. I'm sorry, but, that's, but they're not. That's safer, not a good. But thing. they're not. No, exactly because th- their their index for crime is actually higher. So you can't just you know the. The thing with police is we've got to be able to talk about what does it mean to have community safety? What does, what will it take, uh, you know, for people, you know, for people's well-being? And whenever, you know, when we have, for example, a, a, sh- a shooting, say, in, in, in the city, one shooting is too many. Like, let's put that out there. It is too many. But you know, I've, I've never understood, like, so police don't prevent that shooting. They come in after and they, you know, look at it and try to solve it and find out who, you know, you know, who was the perpetrator. But what is the investment that we're making into uh, just overall well-being? How did somebody even get to that point where they're a victim of that shooting, right? And that's the those are the conversations that we need to have around, around policing, around, um, you know, police budgets and, you know, what are the, what are the, you know, should police be responding to uh, calls in parks for people, you know, who are unwell and who have addictions, who are precariously housed? I would say they shouldn't. I mean, you can't have a park that's policed at all times, but what you can have is you can have good outreach. You can have, you can have the types of things that, that will help people get housed, you know, get, get, get better and, 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 you know, uh, you know, just have overall better well-being. So those are the conversations that we have to start having. I think, I think when we talk, we can't police our way to safety. And exactly, exactly. That, or out of homelessness or, or out, of, out of homelessness. You can't, you mm. just can't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, you know, I know that you are a proponent of defunding the police, which is like a very 
like in terms of like reasonable budgets and like reducing and making sure that we're doing things with the police that make sense and not having them, like you say, go to parks and dealing with um, people who have mental health issues. And yeah, so, I mean, uh, so I think that I think that when we start talking about police, police funding. So I've I've actually, you know, I, I, I think that defunding is a, a trigger for people yes, who 100%. are. No, and, and that, you know, I mean, I have to acknowledge that there are people who feel, you know, that they, uh, you know, that there's more crime maybe in their neighborhood, uh, you know, there's more bike theft, there's more, uh, you know, more people who are unwell, there's, you know, more petty, you know, petty theft, that, that type of thing. So, you know, I think that that defund is, is, is a, a, a trigger there. What I have always maintained is that we right now, you know, when we are when we are being asked for an increase in police budget, we have we do not have the ability to ask any questions about, well, what's the evidence? Why do you need this extra, you know, X million dollars, right? What will that do? Um, you know, for example, we have around 50 uh, senior police officers who have access to private vehicles. There are uh, police vehicles for their own public use, uh, private use rather, 100%, just given to them. Well, that doesn't keep you any safer, right? That, that doesn't, that's not, in my opinion, it's not money well spent. A few years ago, we, the police services in Ottawa uh, gave all of their tasers uh, which end a warranty, gave them all to Peterborough Police Service. Gave them, didn't sell them. Peterborough took them happily. And then I guess we went out and bought new ones. Well, that doesn't keep you any safer. Like, is that money well spent? Like, mm -hmm. what is the evidence for, you know, for the, for the funding, for the increase in funding? And, and, you know, most of serious crime, let's, put it on the table is violence against women, right? It's domestic violence. Uh, it happens in people's homes, right? Say it. You can't, you can't have a police officer in everyone's home, right? So, so increasing, uh, you know, a budget is not going to help. It's not going to reduce violence against women. It's not going to reduce that type of, that type of crime in people's homes. And, you know, the, the priority one calls, you know, where we need, you know, where there's a crime in progress is, is 1% of all calls. So, you know, we have to be able to have the serious conversations in the city about what is it that we're asking police to do today that they shouldn't be in the business of doing, right? Mm -hmm. We have, we have reduced significantly funding to community and social services, mental health services, and as a result, the only person to call if something is happening outside is police. It happened to me not long ago. There was somebody close to where I live who was, I, I imagine, you know, having a, a psychotic breakdown um, and was um, accosting people uh, on the sidewalk. And then police were the only option that should not be right. It, that's what. That's not. That's the problem. That to me, that's a problem. We've got. Well, that's to... what happened to Abdir Manapti. Mm -hmm, you no, know? mm -hmm. 
is yeah, that there's no one else he to was call. Having, and there was, and the thing is, is that you don't always recognize mental health episodes, right? Mm-hmm. As course. just a passerby. Of so course. there of course. should be some sort of interim there, right? To Absolutely. help to 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 be yeah. able to add to triage to the necessary services that this person may need. Yes. I don't understand. Yes. I don't understand why we can't imagine this. Like we can actually do that now. We don't have to remake the system to make that improvement. We actually have. We actually have a community safety and well-being plan. It was. Uh, oh, oh, I thought you we were had... like, we already have changes. I'm like, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> we already have a community safety well-being plan, um, but it's not funded. Right? Mm. It's like, ah. we've got to fund the plan. And we've got to address the real root causes of what is happening in our city? Yeah. It is the social determinants. Yeah, it is people who have addictions. It's people who are being poisoned in this this opioid crisis that that we're facing. And until we do, like our you know our police services budget has tripled in twenty years. So in another twenty, if it triples again, it's you know a billion dollars. We're putting mm-hmm. them in schools. Like how much, I mean, how much money is that? Is that good mm-hmm. use of funds? Mm-hmm. So those, well, those, are, those, those are the questions we, those are the questions yeah. we have to ask, right? Those are the conversations we need to have. And, and, and we haven't, we have to be serious. And how do you, how do you like make that pitch on the doorstep to those who believe that more police is the answer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know what? I always recognize uh, when people feel unsafe, I do, uh, you know, and if, if you've had a shooting at the end of your street, you feel unsafe, right? Like, I think I would, I'm fortunate that it's never happened to me, but I, I think I would feel hmm, that that was, you know, that, that doesn't feel good. If, if I'm, you know, uh, I don't know, in, but when I talk to people at the doors, you know, I I do acknowledge that, but I also talk about, well, what would it take? Like, what would it mean to have, you know, um, like how would more policing have stopped that, have, have prevented that? Like, where would the police be? And I'll give you an example uh, before we go, because it's 1125. (laughs) I'm going to give you an example, but I think this is a very good one. You know, in a, a few years ago, tragic episode here in on Somerset Street, uh, tragic on all counts. So um, a, a worker, Carl Ramboff, who was worked at Somerset West Community Health Center, mm, yeah. was stabbed in broad daylight on Somerset Street by a young man who, by all accounts, just had a psychotic breakdown, right? Like he just Nobody could understand. Nobody knew who he was at the time. You know, like he wasn't uh, involved, like, you know, in, in any type of other crimes. But he was just very unwell. And he stabbed Carl right broad daylight. Wow. Within minutes, within minutes, there were dozens of police cars, right? They all came because because this person was still, um, you know, um, out there, right? So at large. So dozens of police cars were in that two block radius on Somerset where it just happened. And within feet of that, meters, few meters, 
he stabbed someone else. Police were there. Like, the police weren't, like, I, 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 this is not a criticism of the individual officers who were there that day, but they're not, you know, that they, they can't be everywhere. So the, you know, the, what could have prevented that was not more police, obviously. It was, you know, this, this young man, we learned later, and we don't have near the details to make any type of assessment. I don't want to assume that I'm doing that. But, but the account was that he, you know, through COVID, he became more and more isolated, and, oh. you know, and, and then he became unwell. Oh, so no. where, you know, to, to, to have prevented that crime, we needed to go back and take care of that young man, right? Like, that's where the, so those are the conversations I try to have with people. And, you know, uh, it's, it's just about wanting to make sure that any decisions we make as a city on behalf of, you know, this entire city, everyone in it. Uh, it are, is done with evidence and it's done thoughtfully, right? And just not, just can't keep throwing money at something when that has not had the impact, right? Or yeah. authority, actually, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. One last, one last, I have, I feel like we have to ask this. So happy belated pride, first of all. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking at this, at this, at this beautiful painting behind you. And I'm just like mesmerized by it. I love it. It's um, a cool painting. It really is. So how has identity, how mm. has that played into it? We talked about your childhood. We talked about some of your influences, but how has identity played into that just to cap it off? Oh, you know what? Um, I think it's always made me, uh, I don't know, a stronger person. I'll be honest with you. Mm. You know, there's been adversity. There's no doubt. Um, Absolutely. Uh, You know, coming out queer when I did, uh, trans, non-binary, I continue to, you know, sometimes get very hateful messaging. But but overall, I think that it's been a source of strength for me, a source of pride. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I, again, I recognize the privilege that I have, but I've always maintained that, you know, my role is to make way for other voices and step out of the way. Right. And that's, uh, yeah, that's what I always hope to do. Well, I just wanted to say that I feel like you just said something very revolutionary, which is that just your queerness is a source of pride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to hear a politician say that I'm just like maybe there is hope (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate those words actually I really really do because I I think the more you hear that in public spaces from people in authority and leadership is the better off that some kid in like wherever is going to be like okay so you know, I can make that next step or I can, yeah. you know, whatever. I can imagine Absolutely. myself in this world as is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 All right, Catherine. Nice to talk to you guys. Thank it's you been fun. so much. Yeah. We'll do it again. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll be in touch for sure. Bye, guys. Well, all right. Bye, <laughs> bye, bye. Catherine. Bye. Later.